everybody. It's Real Killer Country. My name is Brittany Ransom. And my name is Brian Joyner. And this is When Killers Get Caught, a podcast devoted to deep dives into the lives and psyches of the killers we love to learn about. Each week, Brian and I find a true crime story that resonated with us, and I discuss one well-known or lesser-known killer, go deep into their childhood, lives, methodology, and most importantly, how they caught. Caught. And then we get a little spooky and learn about cryptids and the supernatural. And this is our series finale. Season finale. <laughs> Season. <laughs> Not <laughs> series. <laughs> season finale this is our first whole year podcasting and episode 45 yes we thank everybody for being with us this whole year so many of you who show up every single week and support it's incredible and we have some really exciting things in the work there is a new merch launch that is dropping the same time as our season two podcast you can head over to the website now which is called when killers get caught dot shop uh, you will see we have some designs. Well, the designs aren't up yet, but there's going to be the first of our thick did line of merchandise. The first uh, is the big booty moth man from West Virginia. And <laughs> along with celebrating our first year anniversary, there will be prizes that go along with the launch. You can get a personalized thank you video from Brian and I. We even intend to choose some people and then sign some merch that is not going to be a part of the drop. So it'll be an extra item that you can get access to just as an extra special. Thank you. Yes. Yes. And the other thing is that we decided a little while back that we wanted to do a coloring book of sorts. It's more of a coloring book slash information book. And what it's going to do is cover all of the people that we talked about in season one. And so if you go to when killers get caught dot shop, you can purchase the first page of the coloring book. It's Dr. Marcel Pichot. Uh, this is really kind of just to show you what it's going to look like so you get an idea. But also, you get to participate in helping us make it. So if enough people buy this page that you can have and you know download and color as you want, you'll get your name added to the front and side cover of the book. And... You also get a discount on the book when it is sold. So we'll end up giving codes to everybody who helps us create it because it's going to be a lot of pages because there's at least two people per podcast for almost <laughs> all of them. And then on top of that, it won't just be just coloring pages. It'll also be information pages that both Brian and I write. So you get an opportunity to be a part of something that we're creating and your name will be on it forever. Man, that is just awesome. I think it'll be really cool if we can make it work the way we want to. But getting started like we normally do this week in true crime, Scott Peterson has been convicted of murder again. Yeah, Did you I know that, Brian? I saw that in the headlines, too. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, I didn't read it, but can you tell me more? So Peterson's 49 years old, and he has spent uh, about 15 years on death row in California after being initially found guilty of killing his wife, Lacey Peterson, and their unborn child. Uh, his sentence got overturned last year because they found out that jurors who didn't agree with the death penalty were dismissed from being able to be on the jury. Hmm. 
So they felt like the Wadier process was hampered. And so then they moved him to a jail in San Mateo County. Uh, and they said he gets he got to have a new trial. Which just finished up December 8th, 2021. He was convicted again. Again. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. He was sentenced this time, 15 to life. Before it was the death penalty. Um, so I guess he no longer has to be on the death penalty, which I suppose is, you know. I guess it's okay. A but... win for him. I'm like, it still sucks, dude. Like, you're not exactly, like, in a place. You know what I mean? Like, nothing's... I, I guess he got moved from death row to regular prison. Right, yeah. Congratulations. Huh. Great. Yeah, Good for I you, thought it was like... I, I thought it was like, wow, I can't believe we're going through all this just to get almost an identical charge. That's exactly what it was, except he's not being killed in prison he's just going to die in prison yeah probably. <laughs> his resentencing was life without the possibility of parole yeah there you go um and i guess this gives him the opportunity to potentially drag the court through appeals every couple years <sighs> what's every six years or something like that yeah so um there we go. That's lovely. Yay, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, since this is a brand new trial, they are allowed to appeal this again. And I'm sure they're, they're going to. Yeah, of course. So we are, uh, we're not entirely, well, I mean, you remember when we talked about his sister talking yeah. about how he was innocent. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. Come on now. My God. But yeah, like pretty much the the one uh, attorney said, this could take a few more years in state court, assuming we lose at every level. So at this point, they're just kind of they're playing a numbers game. That's exactly what it and, sounds like. And in the meantime, he doesn't have to be on death row. So congratulations. As if, but here's my thing, though. Like, when's the last time that California even killed anybody? Let's see. The California. state of California or somebody in California? Because, hey. <laughs> Last inmate in California to be executed. It was done in 2006. So California hasn't executed somebody since 2006. Oh, wow. They're not entirely all that hype about it. No, yeah. So they really don't want to. So I don't know. I feel like he was probably never going to make it to his execution date anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, true, true. Oh, goodness. There you go. So Scott Peterson's attorneys are playing the numbers game. They're going to appeal the sentence that came down on the 8th. Uh, I think the next court date is like March. And that judge will have the determination to uphold what was ha happened last week. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I guess we'll talk about it then. <laughs> we'll keep you updated. <laughs> What you got for me in true crime this week? Okay. Well, surprising nobody at all. Uh, Jesse Smollett, uh, Smollett. That's how you pronounce his name, right? Yes. The, the Empire actor. He's convicted of staging his downtown Chicago. His downtown Chicago attack. Of course. He's convicted on, I think it's uh, five counts. Yeah, five of six charges of him staging his anti-gay slash racist attack on himself 
That's about three years ago is when this happened. Honestly, I hadn't thought about it in years. Neither have I. And, and I was like, okay, well, yeah. Like, when I heard about it and then I heard that he faked it, I was like, yeah, okay. I didn't know he was being, like, charged or something about it. Yo, they have been, like, aggressively coming at him for years. Like, I thought it was just over and done with 2019. That's when it was when it started and that's when it ended. But, no, it's, yeah, it's been going on for a while. <laughs> so, like... Obviously, yes. Okay, yeah, we know you faked it. Like the the two brothers that <clears throat> were the ones that attacked him, quote unquote, attacked him. Um, he I made. I still don't know how I feel about it. How you feel about? And, okay, they're saying these two black guys who he paid, who were his personal trainers, are the ones who really attacked him, not two supposed like random white guys. No, it's but, like, it's. No, he said, well, the one of them is actually someone who worked on, I guess, the Chicago set of Empire, too. That's how, yeah, that's how they met. Yeah. But, like, the, the guys are, like, train, like personal trainers or something or nutrition coaches or something. Yeah, something like that. Because they had a long, like, history of, like, texting him back and forth, like, things to do, like, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was, a, like, a personal trainer. He was, they were personal trainers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So... And I don't know. It's like he paid them thirty five hundred dollars to pick this attack. That's what they 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 say. Yeah, that's what they say. But I'm like, uh, I don't know. And they said that he he made sure that he was attacked in front of surveillance cameras and stuff like that. And like he, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. What to think about it, because as as a person who is, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. It's just like. He was found guilty of disorderly conduct uh, uh, related to filing a false police report. Yeah. That's what I thought. 2019, they were like, he filed a false police report. We're done. Yeah. I like, it seems like the, the, like Chicago has been trying to make like a example of him for years now. I'm like, why not be done with it? Yeah. He filed a false re- a police report. That's what happened. Like, charge him, whatever, fine him, whatever you need to do and be done with it. But no, it's been like dragging out. And he's been that's because he's been saying that, you know, this isn't like fake. This is true. This is what happened to me. And uh, and uh, yeah. <laughs> I I just never want to hear about it ever again. And neither do I. I'm like <laughs> I'm done hearing about it. Like this is what happened. Blah blah blah. 2019. This is what happened. We all know like my thing is like it's just one of those situations just like when you have like a murder and you don't know why it happened that's where everybody is still here with this situation oh that is that is true like why why like why why would you do this was it he for said he was he was like a star you know he was on the rise yeah he was on empire he everybody a, loved he empire had a good, he had a good thing going I'm like, did somebody tell him it'd be great if you became like the face of a movement or something? Mm. I don't know. Got to think about that in my own, you know. Yeah. 
Rise. I don't want to be a face <laughs> of a movement. Leave me alone, y'all. Oh, goodness. No, don't leave her alone. Please don't. She needs to be the face. No. Listen, people are going to ask me about opinions. I'm going to be like, listen, I don't have any opinions about anything. <laughs> Except the fact that I hate Ted Bundy. Lifelong hater. Lifelong Ted Bundy hater. Yep. <laughs> Lifelong Ted Bundy hater. Uh, maybe that'll be a shirt one day. It will be. It will be. Don't worry. I'm part of the Ted Bundy hate club. <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, that's what I wanted to talk about and just touch yeah, on no. this week because it's ridiculous. I wonder if the reason why they proceeded with all these cases and stuff is because he wouldn't admit it. That's probably why. I wonder if, like, they probably gave him up because he's got money, so they probably gave him an opportunity to admit, you know, like, he lied and he refused to. And then they went, well, I guess we'll just have to make you a mockery of Chicago. (laughs) It's happened in Chicago, right? Yeah. And it's funny because, like, not only did he say the brothers were lying, but so did his, like, defense attorneys and stuff like that. They're, like, yeah, they're sophisticated liars. Like, obviously, they're motivated because they're homophobic and stuff like that. And race, uh, not racist, but homophobic. So he's saying these people that he worked with wore a mask, took his money, and then, like, beat his ass. Yep. <laughs> I mean, that's, okay, see, that's not impossible. I originally he said there were like some white Trump guys who attacked him. So he's changed the story now. They oh. Weren't they wearing like Trump stuff though? I don't know. But he, he specifically said they were white guys. And those brothers are like two African men. Yeah, they were African. You cannot, you cannot deduce the, 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 the skin complexion. You cannot confuse that. Yeah. They are some dark chocolate men. It's funny because, yeah, because they are black. And he said they were yelling racist slurs and homophobic yeah. slurs and stuff like that. And I'm like, what? Like, maybe, I mean, I don't know. African, they, they could be racist against Americans, I guess. Right? They would have said, you suck, you're American or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, true, I don't true, know. True. Listen, I don't know how you say things to be mean to Americans. We already live in a place that's like, well, they say it's like a... We're like a, a poor a poor person with a Gucci belt. Basically. Like that's what it's like to live here. Like and then you got all these people who are like, This is the best place to live in the world. <laughs> we have gone off on a tangent. Oh my god. Oh my god. Already fifteen minutes in. I'm so sorry. Um Let's go. <laughs> I'm just talking about like oh weird Justin Smollett. I just feel so do you know what? There's just disappointment. That's what I have for him. Yes, there you go. Disappointment. Just is disappointment. What we I am very disappointed in you, sir. All right. So now we're done with that. Let's move on. <laughs> All right. So. I'm going to tell you, if you travel to Germantown, North Carolina, you're going to find a small family cemetery deep in the woods. And there you will find a small mass grave devoted to the Lawson family. This is a curious case about a father and tobacco farmer who murdered everyone in his family except for his oldest son on Christmas Day in 1929. Oh, I think I've heard of this one, too. This would be sad enough looking into Charles Davis Lawson. But after the murders... 
This home became like a depression era sideshow, attracting thousands upon thousands of people who wanted to walk through the crime scene, which was left bloody. So I first read about this case in a book called White Christmas, Bloody Christmas by Trudy Smith. And then I covered this story last year on my TikTok list of Christmas crimes. Then I learned a couple months ago that there was a new book with more stories that Trudy and her dad had chased down. And of course, that led me down the rabbit hole. Uh, The more updated book is called The Meaning of Our Tears. And it's based off the epithet on the family grave that reads, not now, but in the coming years, it will be a better land. We'll read the meaning of our tears and then sometime we'll understand. Hmm. I don't know if you can ever really understand this kind of tragedy. But what we are going to try and do today is piece together the crime itself and the family around it. Okay. So Charles David Lawson, Davis Lawson was born in the unincorporated community of Lawsonville, North Carolina on May 10th, 1886 to parents Augustus and Nancy Lawson. He was born on a rural tobacco farm which was very common at the time. And he was one of 10 children. And I'm going to tell you this when I met, there's a lot of family in this story and I'm going to try and remind you of the people when they come up, like I'll say his brother, Marion, his cousin, this, because it's almost impossible when every single family here has like 10 kids to remember everybody. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) So he had uh, brothers and sisters, Mary and John, John W., James J., Charles D., Elijah, George W., Etta S., Lizzie Lawson, and Dacia Lawson. That's a much, a much as we know about the family makeup. Now, his brother Marion was a little bit younger, being born in 1896. And the, I mean, the two of them are kind of the central plot of this story, Marion and Charles. Now, when Marion was 18, he met a woman named Jetty, and they got married April 21st, 1912. And I bring them up because Jetty became instant best friends with Fanny Manring Lawson. That's Charles's wife. And that close friendship gave us some of the details that we know about Charles and Fanny's relationship. And also Marion is important because he ended up being the person who turned that house into a tourist trap. So like I said, Marion and Jetty have this quick courtship. They get married in 1912. Charles and Fanny also had a pretty court court quick courtship (laughs) in the fall of 1910 and they got married in 1911 so right around the same time both of these couples get married become friends uh charles was 24 fanny was 19 she got pregnant by summer they would go on to have eight children total marie who was born in 1912 arthur born in 1913 carrie 1917 maybell 1922 James, 1925, Raymond, 1927, and Mary Lou in 1929. They did have one other child. His name was William. He was born in 1914, but he did not survive. Mm. Now, let's head back to his parents, Gus and Nancy. Gus and Nancy were very active parts of their children and grandchildren's lives. They had Sunday dinner at church, pretty much Sunday dinner after church, pretty much every weekend. And... One weekend in 1914, they learned that Uncle Marion had purchased this lot of land. And what he did was really smart at the time. He convinced an old neighbor, Dr. Smith, to transfer his farm to him uh, because Smith was elderly and unable to really tend the land anymore. And Uncle Marion takes over that mortgage. And now he's got a full farm 
And he's definitely coming off as the more successful brother in his family. He can't really afford equipment, but he borrows some from his dad's farm and their neighbors. And he starts making this like overgrown farm look awesome. Um, he also starts making a lot of babies, which is, you know, what folks did at the time. Of course, you're bored. Make a baby. Now, the entire Lawson family, grandpa, uncle and Charles, all still pretty poor. Despite the fact that being a tobacco farmer was sort of their family trade, nobody really made a whole lot of money off of it yet. Uh, not to mention that when you own your own farm, at least in this time period, like the 20s, you're battling your own fires, natural disasters, floods, illness, tornadoes, droughts. Oh, my God. Like there's right. There was no like official organized government things you know what i mean like if your neighborhood had a fire department it was just a couple of people who brought the buckets <laughs> there was never really a break and just the constant like upset that was farm life in the early 20s now charles and his wife fanny have been living in lawson field their whole relationship pretty much with his dad so they decide they want to move to germantown marion lived there so did his brother Elijah. The land in Germantown was apparently more level and just fertile in general. And the hope was that he would get to make better money than his dad had. And the other benefit to Germantown was that it was less of a hike to get to where the family sold their tobacco, which was in Winston-Salem, which is only about 15 miles away. But when you only have mules, it's a long hike. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, my God. Yeah. So he purchases a tract of land from Benjamin Bowman for $1,500, which is about $28,000 today, which is honestly still an incredible deal because on October 23rd, 1918, right, the legal documents were signed and filed. Two tracts of land, one was 40 acres and the other was 23. Oh, damn. That's a lot. <laughs> 63 acres for only $28,000. That is not a bad deal. Give me that. Now... Charles didn't have that on hand because that was an astronomical amount of money to owe to people $1,500. So he was told that he had to make payments as harvest came in and there wasn't really a set timeline to pay it off. That was bad business, but we'll, I'll let you know why a little while later. <laughs> now, Charles is described as a very reserved man, very serious. He took his debt very seriously. When they moved to that farm, he was 32 years old. He did have a little bit of a short temper, but he was very well liked in his community because he was always willing to help people. Now, not only was this like a serious financial venture, but this was the first time that he was going to be away from his parents and fully on his own without their help. Because in the past, you really lived with your parents until you could live on your own. So there was a lot of pressure for him to do well and provide for his very quickly growing family. So the day that they moved to Germantown, Elijah and Marion came, helped Charles, and they got his family settled into their much smaller home. But Charles' intention was to build a bigger house, make the land work for him. By 1919, his family settles into a nice schedule. Charles and Marion both work their own land. They travel, deliver their product together. They meet at one of the other's house every Sunday for dinner with the families. Uh, winter sucks in the 1900s. I mean, honestly, winter on the East Coast is pretty intense as it is. Yeah. And it's not as bad as the Midwest by any means. But rural areas, it, it sucks pretty hard. Um, 
And it was very necessary for families to lean on each other. And sickness in the early 1900s was no joke. And the winter of 1918, 1919, Charles got sick. They had only been there for a few months, and he was in so much pain that he spent most of his time in his bed. Now, the doctors said that he had arthritis, which doesn't make sense to me because you can't get better from arthritis. I don't think so. <laughs> you just have it, and it's just a, a state, a, a new status ailment. Yeah, you just uh, take like... On, on, on your character for the rest of your life. Basically, you just take pills for it, I think, or something. I'm not sure. Well, they're saying he's dealing from arthritis. He needs to stay in bed. Well, at the beginning of February, Grandpa Gus gets sick. And within a week, he's dead from bronchial pneumonia. Oh, God. One of the men that Charles made a deal for his farm with was Mr. Tuttle. And Tuttle was one of the few people in Germantown with a phone. He got the call from Lawson Field about Grandpa Gus and had to take the news to the Lawson Sons. Charles was still sick in bed when he found out that his dad died and he was so ill he couldn't go. Uh, his wife, Fanny, had to even stay with him to make sure he, like, stayed alive. Um, the other Lawson families took care of the Lawson siblings took care of the funeral. He was taken to the Lawson family plot to be buried. Uh, it was be a couple more months before Charlie was good enough to get up and go see his dad's grave and say goodbye. Mm-hmm. Now, Gus Lawson was only 66 years old, and Mom Nancy, now a widow, decided she was going to sell the family farm and move to be near her three sons. So she moved to Germantown first. Then in uh, the 1920s, she moved to Ohio to be near her one son and then moved back to Germantown, South Carolina, two years later because she was homesick. (laughs) Oh. Now, because of that illness, Charles got a late start on getting his tobacco farming and the Tuttles were friends, but not gracious lenders. And they legally took possession of the farm in 1919. And he could not make payments. And he became a tenant. Farming on another man's land, just like he had been doing in Lawsonville. In fact, Charles wasn't healthy again, like fully healthy until 1921. The loss of this land was probably just crushing to him. And it probably also didn't help that he would the kind of person to just work through an illness. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that keeps you from getting better longer. I don't know anything about that. I would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, tragedy strikes again in 1920 when their son, William, is six years old. He gets a bad cold just before his birthday on November 10th. Uh, Fanny used all the home remedies she could, but it didn't get any better. Uh, then the weekend of the nineteenth, of the thirteenth, fourteenth, he began to run a fever. He got more sick. On uh, November fifteenth, Charles went to Walnut Cove and got the doctor. It took him all day to get there, and the doctor pronounced William with the same illness that killed his grandfather, oh. pneumonia. God. He died the following day, November sixteenth, nineteen twenty. Damn. Yep, a devastating loss for the family. They spent the next year grieving. Sometime during 1921, the family moved to another property. They called it the McGee Farm. It was on Highway 8, and they lived there for another two years. They moved a lot during this time period, and they definitely leaned on, Charles leaned on his siblings. Uh, But people just kept dying. Uh, November of 1922, the two-year-old daughter of their youngest sister, Dacia, dies. She somehow got too close to the fireplace in their home. And before they could get any water or anything else, she was gone. What? Oh, my God. 
um, that same fall, uh, Marion, his youngest son, gets sick and dies at only 10 months old. It's just the 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 winter is just a bad time for the Lawson family. That's what it sounds like. God, <laughs> bad luck. So it's nineteen, yeah. So the time passes. Nineteen twenty four. Charles and Fanny moved to another property down the same highway. That room that had a three room longhouse. They had two more children: James on April fifth, nineteen twenty five, and Raymond February eighteenth, nineteen twenty seven. They moved for the last time to the Browder Farm. On Brook Cove Road in 1927. It was this impressive property. Even though the house on it was a little weird. The home was segmented. So that the bedrooms were in one building. And the kitchen and dining room were in another. (laughs) Right. Which is something they had to fix later. (laughs) However, behind the house was a stream. It had fresh dewberry vines. I didn't know this. But dewberries are actually another kind of blackberry. Ooh. Do you want to know how big this property was? How many acres? How many are you talking? 114 acres of farmland and 24 acres of flatland beyond that. Oh, my God. The home was the only thing on the property that wasn't that nice looking. Um, The house was nearly 200 years old, and he knew he would have to build something better for his family. But this was him trying again, going to follow my dreams, have my own farm. So on April 30th, 1927, the deed was filed that he would purchase this property for $3,200, which is about $51,000 in today money. And he was going to have to pay $500 a year until it was completely paid off. Hmm. This time, though, Charles didn't borrow money from his friends. He instead used the Wachovia Bank and Trust Company in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I didn't know Wachovia was around that long. Neither did I. Wa- I would like to say Wachovia. Why does that sound so familiar? <laughs> That's, it's, I didn't realize this bank is over 100 years old. Go figure. My God. Mm-hmm. So uh, Fanny and the oldest daughter, Marie, go about trying to clean the place so people can live in it. Uh, it was rough. Charles promised Fanny that he was going to build her a bigger house, but first they had to pay off the mortgage. It didn't even have a stove in it, just an open fireplace in the kitchen. So the first thing that Charles did was buy her a wood-burning stove, which was the very modern thing at the time, Mm -hmm. uh, as sort of a promise to her that he'd give her a real kitchen one day. Charles and their now 14-year-old son, their oldest boy, Arthur, worked on fixing the outside. They had to remove the shutters, fix these 200-year-old windows, and try and make them modern. They had to replace some of the logs and the cinching between the logs, because it was like a big log cabin. But summer of 1927, they have a house fit for living and a farm full of tobacco plants and corn. Things are going well for the first time in a long time. Since you can't just sell fresh tobacco, it has to be dried. And on the flatlands, there was an old tobacco building that Charles was trying to upgrade to use as what's called his pack house. Um, controlling the moisture during that this time period, once you've pulled the plants, is really important. So what they would do is dig like a little, it was almost like a wine cellar, but they call it a tobacco basement. The moisture in the ground keeps the tobacco from not getting too dry in the summer. And while Charles was doing the digging for the cellar in the summer of 1927, he sustained a head injury. Mm-hmm. There it goes. I knew you were ready for it. <laughs> he was in the uh, an area of the pack house, and he was trying to clean out a drain uh, that had weeds and grass and stuff in it. And he didn't notice that there was an old fence 
in like the brambles and weeds. So as he is swinging his mattock, it gets caught on a wire. And when he yanked, the wire broke and he hit himself in the forehead with it. And for anybody listening who doesn't know what a mattock is, it is that sharp tool that miners carry where one side is pointy and the other side is flat. Like a pickaxe? I don't, it's not called a pickaxe. Um, pickaxe has both sides are sharp. Oh, okay. Huh. Matic, half one, like one side is flat and the other side is pointy. So, okay. yeah, he pulled that back and hit himself in the face with it. Oof. He immediately stopped, went to the local doctor in Germantown, covered in blood. Uh, the doctor was surprised because it looked really bad. Uh, but apparently all the blood was because he hit a few blood vessels in his scalp. He hadn't knocked himself out. And so the doctor assumed that everything was fine. But I think after a year of you listening to my stories, <laughs> we know that head trauma is one of the factors in a lot of these cases. Everything just go down, goes downhill from here. Yeah, you would be right. By fall, uh, Charlie Charles bruises have faded. He's finally getting out one of the best crops he's ever had. Fall of 1927, the tobacco market was paying $23.33 per pound. And the region that they were living in sold over 830,000 pounds in 1927. This was the life that he'd always wanted. Uh, they prepped the tobacco fields by burning them that winter, cultivating the soil, Burning the soil kills the insects and weeds that hurt the seedlings. They sow the beds early, cover them to protect them from the frost and snow. Um, one thing I realized in researching this, tobacco farming is meticulous and nonstop. Pretty much year-round, you are always tending your, your fields. Sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, and he spent, Charles spent all his time making sure there were no tobacco worms, planting, replanting the seedlings for their best placement so they didn't get too close to each other. The roots weren't too, you know, choking each other out. Mm-hmm. 1928 starts. It's going well. They, as a family, gathered, sorted, cured. The kids helped where they could. They got The kids helped with the sorting, which was looking at the leaves and deciding which ones were bad, okay, and real good. Uh, and then the Lawson family as a whole was hit with another loss. Uh, Jetty, Marion's wife, passed at the end of April in 1928. Jetty was close with pretty much all of the other sisters and wives of the Lawsons. It was a long illness, and she was fully aware of what was happening. They just didn't know how to fix it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, like, it was the kind of thing where she was able to have a cogent conversation with her husband about the fact that she was going to die. Oh, God. She was, yeah, she was placed in Browder Cemetery May 2nd, 1928. Uh, Grandma Nancy moves in to help the children. Um, they had an issue, though. Jetty had recently given birth to a little baby named Hallie Marie. And she was still breastfeeding, almost exclusively. And even though they were trying to bottle feed her, the baby just got weaker and weaker. And she passed in about another week. Goodness. Yeah. And, you know, it's like such an interesting thing because I see people get into arguments online all the time about how, like, breastfed is the best thing. And I'm like, they created formula so that things like this didn't happen. 
Yeah. They created formula so that we more babies could survive. So regardless as to whatever is the better option, formula saved countless children. Yeah, it's it's all about survival. <clears throat> but even though 1928, sad year, successful farming year, they have another good yield. That fall in uh, Winston-Salem was the first time, though, that somebody noted, like, that anybody noticed a change in Charles' behavior. So it's, like, it's fall time. They go to the market in Winston-Salem, and there's a black man there pushing a cart. And they just happened to, like, you know, turn the corner at the wrong time, and the cart bumped into Charles's leg. And his son, Arthur's there. He's only, like, 15 at this time. And... Charles starts berating the black man, like screaming racial slurs. Then he jumps on him and starts like beating the absolute crap out of him. Just screaming at the top of his lungs. He's never done anything like this at any other time in his life. Arthur tries to pull them apart. It's no help. It's looking pretty bad for the other guy until he pulls out a knife and stabs Charles in the chest and runs away. What the hell? Now, Charles has a punctured lung, still enraged, drops his cart full of goods, and tries to chase this guy until he loses enough blood that he falls to the ground outside of the market. And he survives this? He, absolutely. And he's rushed to the hospital. He stays there for two weeks. He recovers doesn't speak anything about this anymore. Hmm. Charles was weird in other ways too during this time. He didn't let the kids have any Christmas stuff. Um, He got offended if anyone offered them like toys or candies or things. Neighbors would sneak the family like little extra Christmas goodies and then just be like, oh, we had extra. Like he got like extra proud, which is weird because he never had an issue, you know, accepting help from his friends or family beforehand. Mm Mm-hmm. But 1928, he's just like, no, we're not having a Christmas. Like, we can't afford it. You know, they don't need it. So winter ends and spring of 1929 comes. Arthur is uh, helping his dad with the chores. And they're cultivating the plants. Which I don't entirely understand what that means. It involves, like, somehow pulling them out of the ground, but not, like, all the way. And Charles gets really angry, starts screaming that Arthur is pulling up the plants wrong. He goes and grabs a tobacco sampling and moves to try and whip Arthur. Now, at this point, Arthur is 16 years old and he is bigger than his father. And he calmly just goes, you are not going to whip me today. Mm. He's like, in fact, you will never be man enough to ever put your hands on me again. And Charles goes to hit him with it. And like Fanny and the like the younger girls are watching from the house. Arthur grabs his hand when he goes to hit him and rips the switch out of his hand, throws it to the ground. And it's just like, I'll go back to work and I'll, I'll make sure I don't like pull him out too much. He's like, but you are not going to hit me. Mm-hmm. Damn. Nice. Yes. It's yes. <laughs> um, now the summer of 1929, Fanny's struggling. She had a miscarriage before her current pregnancy and she felt like this, she's pregnant. This one was wor- like harder on her body than before. And it's really not surprised because at this point, this is Fanny's 10th baby. 
she birthed like eight wait so eight yep then william died then she had a, a miscarriage so this is her like like ninth or tenth baby oh my god so many babies <laughs> yeah she relied really heavily on her eldest daughter marie to help with the other kids charles might have had a short temper with the kids but he didn't hurt fanny um, in fact, neighbors who saw them together were always amazed at how gentle he was with her. When she was weak, he would help her do her hair. When he was planting, he'd like go and fetch her water and things while she was sitting outside on the porch in the sun. To the outside world, Fanny was married to the most amazing man in town. Mm-hmm. How- However, on the inside, Charles was struggling. He was having these increasingly more dangerous headaches. They were just awful. He told both of his brothers, Marion and Elijah, about it. He went to the doctor, asked for help, but they didn't know how to help him. He went to multiple doctors. He told his brothers that he would be up all night. He would never get to sleep, which made him even more irritable. He told his brother that he felt like there was always trouble around every corner. Um, and then when Marion tried to like press him for more information, he just sort of stopped that conversation, walked away, and sat on the train tracks. Uh much later, after the tragedy that happens, Marion said that he wished he had pressed him instead of walking away. But he just said, you know what? I'll talk to him later about it. And you know how that goes. Yeah, you never get around to it again. Yep. The conversation never happened. So Fanny has her last child, Mary Lou, on August 26, 1929, very much unaware of this strange conversation that Charles has had with Marion. And completely unaware to how things are going to continue to get weird for the coming months. We move into fall of 1929. And for most people in the region, fall is the end of the good stuff and the worry for winter. For the Lawsons, it's the time when almost everyone in their family has gotten sick and died. (laughs) For the rest of people in Germantown and North Carolina, the weather and illness were just really tough. So sometime around Halloween, Charles actually tries to talk to Fanny about what's going on in his head. And it was almost exactly the same way with Marion. He started the conversation. And then when Fanny was like, I love you, what's wrong? How can I help you? He pulled back. We know this because Fanny told her sister-in-law, Nina, about the conversation. But nobody knew what Charles wanted to talk about and why he was so conflicted. Fanny also told her sister-in-law that she would wake up and he would be outside. He was complaining of his headaches, her, his head hurting more and more. And one night she found him outside and he begged her to be left alone, but Fanny wouldn't like leave him be. And she was like, please come back inside with me. And when he got up to follow her, she saw that he had taken his shotgun outside with him. Mm. It would appear that that night, Charles intended to kill himself, but Fanny stopped him. Now, every Sunday, since at this point now, we have the one brother, Elijah, Marion, and Charles all living in the same area, they decide somebody holds Sunday dinner at a different house. Afterwards, the kids go hang out together outside, goof off. The moms hang out in the house. The dads go talk in the tobacco fields because they're all tobacco farmers. (laughs) Those weekends were when Arthur started telling his cousins how his dad was getting weirder and weirder, how he would sometimes wake up and see his dad pacing like around the house 
and Arthur was worried and to the point where he had started going to bed fully dressed so that if he needed to help his mom or his sisters and little brothers, he could be able to just go and run. Oh, damn. He was just ready. Yeah. I mean, he was the oldest boy, 16 years old. So he was just like, I got, I, somebody's got to protect them. Yeah, I see. I see something weirds going on, so I gotta like, yeah, okay. Well, so at one of those Sunday dinners, Nina asked about Charles' behavior. She's just like, "Hey, you know, is anything getting better?" And Fanny's like, "Absolutely not. Uh, the headaches are bringing him to tears." She said she's woken up more than one time with him sitting on the side of the bed just crying. Other times, she says he just hops up, runs to the guns, and checks to make sure they're loaded. Or she would find him in the living room, like, obsessively cleaning them and checking them in the middle of the night. More than once, she found him out in the cornfield holding a gun and just, like, praying and crying. Another time, she found him out in the train tracks near their home. He had built a fire, and he was just sitting on the train tracks staring at it. What the fuck? Yeah, another one of the Lawson wives, uh, her name was Bertha, said that her husband had told her about a time that they were out watching the fire and curing tobacco. And so during the curing process, it's really important to make sure that the the temperature stays the same the entire time. So 24 hours, the men would just take shifts. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, Bertha was like, my husband told me Charles just didn't go to sleep. He stayed up all night, like crying and like checking the fire. Oh my God. So in late November, the neighbor's, report that they start hearing arguing almost daily from inside the Lawson home. They didn't know what was happening, but Charles would get riled up about something and he would like start, you know, like chucking stuff and Arthur would insert himself in between Charles and the rest of the family and force his dad to back down. Pretty much he would like, Charles was threatening to kill the family and Arthur would grab him and hold him until he physically calmed down. Oh, damn. So this is like a regular... So he already... This is like a reoccurring thing, huh? Yeah, this is starting to happen every day now. So Thanksgiving 1929, the deputy sheriff, William Burroughs, decides he's going to try and see because he's hearing about this from other people in town. And so he goes to Charles and he's like, Hey, I hear you got, you know, good rabbits around here for hunting. Do you mind if I come hunt? And so... Charles is like, I was intending to go out today, too, you know, so we could have rabbit stew for dinner. You can come with me. They spent all morning together hunting, you know, skinning the animals, prepping them to take them to their wives. And when the deputy left that day, he felt like Charles is an all right guy. Maybe a little high strung, but he doesn't seem like he's a danger to anybody. Mm -hmm. So two weeks before Christmas, Fanny is like, hey, do we have any Christmas plans? Last year, we couldn't do Christmas. Because you said we didn't have the money for it. We have the money this year. So Charles is just like, well, we're not doing Christmas, but I do have a surprise for everybody. Ooh, okay. Wait, ooh, no. (laughs) No, I don't like your surprises, Charles, at all. No. Well, during that time, Marie, their oldest daughter, who's now 17, had a sleepover with her best friend, Ella May. And she told her her friend, Ella, that Charles had sexually assaulted her and she was pregnant. She told her friend that Fanny and Fanny knew about it because she had figured it out on her own. 
because she was like, you've missed two periods. What the fuck? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So mom was like, "Uh, you're not using any of those supplies in the bathroom. What's going on? So Fanny kind of figured it out. And then when she prodded Marie enough, Marie told her. uh, She had told Charles and Charles told her if she told anyone, even her mom, there would be some killing done. That's a direct quote. Oh, my God. Now, Marie told her best friend about this because Ella May's father had done the same thing to her the year before. And so it was like if anybody understood what she was going through, it was Ella. The girls went to sleep that night. They didn't talk about it again. Uh, In Sal Lawson's autobiography, she's one of Charles Lawson's nieces. She said that she overheard Jaddy Lawson and Fanny Lawson talking about it and that Fanny was worried about an incestuous relationship between Charles and Marie. Now, if you remember, Jetty died in April of 1928, mm-hmm. which means that this was going on a full year before Marie told her best friend. Oh my God. Oh my God. Wow. It, yeah. It does fall after the head injury, but I'm not entirely sure I'm okay with. Yeah. I don't want to blame the head. Yeah. Injury connecting, no. uh, uh, a traumatic brain injury with sexual assault. Absolutely not. No, no, no. I mean, at this point for Fanny, it's like everything's spiraling out of control. She has six kids under 17 years old to watch out for. And there's no way this lady's going to provide for that big of a family on her own. So as far as she was concerned, that secret died with Jetty. She wasn't telling anybody else. Oh, wow. Damn. So 10 days before Christmas, Charles wakes up and tells the whole family, get dressed, we're going into the city. That's Winston-Salem where he sells all of his wares. Now this is a big deal and it's very exciting because he told them he was going to get everybody brand new store-bought clothes and they were going to get a family portrait done. For a family, uh, even with the fact that they were making like the, you know, $20 a pound on the tobacco, it's almost unheard of for like rural farmers in that time period to spend their money on a family portrait. Uh, Some of the youngest children had never been to, you know, the big city. Fanny assumed she was like, I guess this is a surprise that Charles said he had for us. He let the family get the best clothes that they could afford, which in hindsight is odd because this is the man who never let them spend any money because he was, you know, deathly afraid that, you know, they were going to have a bad harvest and lose the property. Right, right. December 18th, 1929, the wife of former landlord, of his former landlord, uh, the Tuttles, uh, his wife, Martha Tuttle, died. And the whole Lawson family went there. They've been friends for a long time, since the early night, like, the, when they moved here, like, 1918. Uh, the house was too small for all the people to kind of be there so charles was standing outside with a group of neighbors and they like built a little fire outside so the people wouldn't be too cold and he said in front of the group not very loud but just i wouldn't mind dying but i would want to take my family with me no no (laughs) okay December 20th, the first snow hits Germantown. It's actually a huge snowstorm, though. The people in North Carolina didn't know this, but it hit like 
almost all of the U.S., from like the East Coast over to uh, the Midlands aspect of the U.S. It was a white Christmas for almost everybody in the United States. Uh, but for North, for German to North Carolina, it's about to be one of the saddest. December 23, weather gets colder. People start getting back to work, though. Charles takes a mule to Walnut Cove because his truck is not going to make it. Uh, neighbors reported he had trouble getting the mule to go where he wanted, but he seemed like his new normal self. He went home, and Arthur and one of his cousins who was staying overnight named Sanders uh, and all and Charles, they kind of all pulled up their chair near the fire. And Sanders was like, hey, are you going to go hunting with the two of us tomorrow? And Charles just says, I don't know whether I will or not. Which makes me believe that up until that moment, I, I, I don't, I think that Charles Lawson was fighting with this. I think he wanted to definitely kill himself. I think he was contemplating killing his family, but he was still bouncing back and forth between, I'm not sure, or I'm going to do it. Hmm. I think at this point he may have just been like, he, he settled, he knew he was going to do it. He settled on that damn idea that he was going to do this and he was just like i don't know when i'm going to do it yeah maybe that was it because there is a moment that makes him angry and i think that's the moment when he like officially goes you know what right now hmm. uh, so they end up not going hunting on christmas eve so christmas morning happens fanny wakes up gets breakfast ready charles reminds everybody your christmas present were those brand new clothes that i got you but there is another surprise coming later <laughs> everybody eats uh, Arthur and Sanders put on their coats to go rabbit hunting uh, while they're outside they run into another cousin Odell Ashby and all three of them join up together to hunt rabbits they do this about until 9 and then they go over to their other family's houses to say Merry Christmas as the boys start they really what happened is that like uh, Odell was like I need to go get ammo why don't y'all come to my house and say hi to my parents and then Sanders had to go get more ammo at his house, and they did the same thing. And then Arthur stopped by his house and grabbed more of his ammo. And uh, what they ended up doing was gathering up cans as they were walking around, and they decided they were going to have a shooting contest out in the yard. Charles came out and joined them. Uh, the oldest sister, Marie, started baking a cake for the family. Around noon, a lot of the neighbor kids and the other younger Lawsons came over to play with the little kids. When the boys were out of ammunition, they asked Charles if they could have some of his, and he was like, uh, hell no. So they decided to go into town to buy more for themselves and Charles. <laughs> this is the defining moment for Arthur Lawson. He believed until the day that he died that if he had not gone into Germantown to buy more ammo, he could have protected his family. What set Charles off that day was Marie saying that she was going to go see a Christmas play with her brother and her boyfriend and that she was in the mirror, like in her mom's room, like her parents' room, curling her hair and she had on makeup. And Charles was just like, I don't want you to be around that boy. You're not allowed to go. And Marie was just like, I'm going. You can't stop me. I'm literally almost a grown-up. 
Right. He loves kids. I mean, it's exactly what teenagers say. Um, It is. And so Charles is like, oh, really now? So Fanny had plans to take the youngest kids to go visit Uncle Elijah. Charles took his gun, went outside, walked to the tobacco barn, and waited. He waited until uh, his daughters, Carrie and Maybelle, who were 12 and 7, took the path around the farm and past the tobacco barn. And he shot Carrie with his rifle. And then as Mabel ran away, he went to shoot her with the gun jammed. He switched and shot Maybelle in the back with a 12-gauge shotgun. People in town heard the shots, but they assumed people were out hunting. Mm-hmm. Those two shots had not killed the little girls, so he ended up taking the butt of his gun and beating both of them. Then he dragged them into the tobacco barn. He placed these big flat stones under their heads, arranged their arms like they were at a funeral, closed their eyes. Now, Fanny's on the porch. She hears the shots, but like I said, the kid, the boys were out shooting guns all morning. She sees Charles running up to the house, carrying a gun in his hand. As soon as he is close enough to take the shot with the shotgun, he shoots Fanny on the porch. Oh. Marie runs to the front door to see her father dragging Fanny inside. Now, the neighbors hear this. And they see Marie leaning over her mom's body, like in the doorway. Mm -hmm. A mail carrier is actually passing by to hear the death of uh, Fanny. Another one of the, actually one of the neighborhood boys ran to the house uh, and they saw him shoot Fanny at close range. She was knocked almost into the fireplace and the little boy was like so terrified um, he was one of the, the, the family name was Hassel. He was one of the Hassel kids. But later on, much later, he uh, told the police that the hole was big enough inside of her to see Charles. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, it was a, a close range shotgun blast through the chest. The right, second yeah. shot. Yeah. Now, Charles noticed that he was being watched, not only by his neighbor, but by the two youngest, his two youngest sons. Mm-hmm. Uh the young Hassel told the police that Charles looked like he was ready to kill anybody he saw. He was so scared that he like ran home and his parents couldn't get him to talk about why he was so scared. Hmm. Um, just like before, uh, apparently Fanny was still moving and he used the butt of his shotgun to bludgeon her. Uh, and then he, uh, shot Marie at close range as well. Uh, hit her in the head too just to make sure the two youngest boys cried and just tried to hide uh one little boys was trying to hide behind the stove in the kitchen and charles sort of picked it up and dropped it halfway on him so when the police came to find like came to the house raymond was half under the stove still like, it partially crushed his skull. James tried to run around his sister's crib to get away from his father. Uh, Charles just bludgeoned him until he didn't move. He took the butt of the shotgun and bludgeoned their four-month-old daughter, Mary Lynn. Then he put Fanny and Maurice. He went and got both of their pillows from their bedrooms, put them under their heads, and set them up there. 
um, at one point neighbors came to the porch and saw it and were like, like they didn't see him. They um, heard him upstairs when he was in Marie's room trying to get her pillow and they freaked and ran to the police. He dragged um, all the children except for Raymond to the fireplace, put pillows under their heads, arranged them like they were sleeping. And he walked into the nearby woods where he ultimately shot himself. Uh, like two thirty, huh? I'm sorry. Why in the woods, though? If you wanted to die with your family, then just shoot yourself where your bodies are at. I'm sorry, well, I'm I'm being okay. picky about people killing themselves, but yeah. <laughs> well, we're gonna find. I'm gonna explain that a little bit more now. By two thirty p.m., everybody in the Lawson family home is dead, except for the second oldest child, Arthur Lawson. Um, at first, the police don't know where he is. They're like, I mean, originally it's like somebody killed the Lawson, the whole Lawson family. People, you know, running around town. Um, what happened is that they had two dogs. I know one, I forget the other name, but one was called Queen. And Queen came back without Charles. And these dogs were fairly loyal. They went out hunting with the men and things like that. So the police ended up following the dog back to the location where Charles killed himself. The, the actual crime took place maybe, we're talking like between like 12 o'clock and 12.15 max. So he spent the next two hours pacing around a tree. Like they could tell because the, there were bloody footprints. And okay. they, he just walked around. Like it was almost like he wasn't sure he wanted to do it. Huh. Uh, and then when they picked up his body, pieces of paper fell out of his pocket. One of them said, nobody to blame but, and the others, the other note said, troubles can cause. These weren't, like, it was like he went to start suicide notes and couldn't finish them. Right, yeah. I understand that. Yeah, okay. Um, they also said that they found a letter that he wrote to his parents but that letter did not include a reason for killing himself or his family. Um, hmm. They didn't find him until about 4.35 p.m. And Arthur Lawson was with the police when this happened. What happened next was very confusing for most of the people in town. So the bodies were taken to the local morgue and they realized they didn't have enough space. So they had to move that to another location. So while that's being handled, Marion, Elijah, and other Lawson men, be it the brothers-in-laws or whatnot, have to stand at the door of the cabin and they're refusing to let anybody inside. Like somebody showed up and offered $500 if you let me inside. From the day it happened. Uh, people are just okay all right eventually police have to station guards and like rope the whole house off um at one point like because there was all this blood on the porch um they kind of dug like a small grave like a like a tiny grave and they kind of dumped all the blood in it and while they were trying to clean it up somebody showed up with like a canning jar and like scoop some of the blood. 
What the fuck? Why? Why? I I do not understand people in this time period or in that time period. Like, what do you mean, I mean in this time period? Like, this is like of the most interesting things to me. This has been the same since things started here. The, Brittany, uh, I don't understand. This is an American thing. Why we are so obsessed with violence to this degree? This okay, would happen today. It, you think someone would go and collect some blood from a crime scene? Listen, remember when we talked about the bath, uh, the bath massacre, and how somebody was stealing like bits of uh, the guys, the man who blew himself up, his his like bones and stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that happened well before this happened in the eighteen hundreds. But like, I don't know. I just wonder if there like there's a lack of excitement. I mean, okay. So, so they're like, screw it. This is the the the, the hot goss. Okay, I I kind of get the the like the morbid curiosity for like dead things. Like I I have that. I like I like to go collect you know s- skulls and stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think animal skulls are very interesting. You know, as yeah, long as yeah, they but- are ethically collected after the animal naturally passed. A- absolutely, but you know, like. Stuff from like humans and like I don't. Eh, it's a little. I don't know. <laughs> it's a lot, and I'm like, what are you gonna do with this like partially covered jar of like this this jar of blood? And then it was a canning jar, so that's the kind that you seal. You yeah, know? they're gonna keep it on the shelf for like years and years, and it's gonna be like a family heirloom, and they're gonna pass it down. <laughs> well, like this is a, <laughs> a jar of blood I got from this murder scene. Oh, God. Well, the other Lawson siblings show up, and they start trying to, like, clean up a little bit. Like I said, the, the crowd showed up to watch them dump the blood from the house into a makeshift, that makeshift grave. Um, they locked the house after removing most of the blood, and they went to begin the task of helping to dig the grave for all the remains. While that's going on, we sidetrack over to... Uh, the night, I mean, Christmas night, uh, doctors show up to help with autopsy and whatnot. They decide mm-hmm. they want to do an autopsy on Charles because he had him been complaining of headaches and head pain for the last year. Several of the doctors who showed up to help with this were doctors who tried to help him. Ultimately, they remove his brain, put it in formaldehyde, and take it to Johns Hopkins by train. One of the doctors takes it by hand the whole way to make sure nothing happens and it doesn't disappear uh, on January 2nd, 1930. Uh, I can tell you now, they thought they could find nothing wrong with his brain. No abnormalities, no nothing. Hmm. The doctors conclude the families were victim of a murder-suicide. They were going to have the viewing at the Yelton Funeral Home, which was the largest one in the area. Uh, December 26, 1929, they put the family in their best outfits they owned. The ones from the picture that they took just 10 days before. Right, right. I do remember that part. Mm-hmm. Uh, I- December 27th, they prepare for the wake and the funeral. People start arriving hours before the service is scheduled, which is at noon. Now, the plan was to make this a very simple and brief service because... They still, like, there were still piles of snow everywhere. 
There's so many car like cars that people abandoned them on the road and just started walking barefoot, like well, not barefoot, but like walking on foot through the snow to the cemetery. Police had to come and like force people to like move their cars to the side uh, to make space so the procession of hearses, hearses could get there. By the time they were ready, thousands of people who didn't even live in Germantown were there. All of them at the edges of the cemetery. But I will say this, when the Lawson family arrived and took their places near the mass grave, the entire crowd went silent. I'm not entirely sure that would happen in today's society. No. Like bare minimum, they were like, listen, we want to see the awfulness. But we're yeah. going to try and be respectful. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, goodness. Okay. Arthur was struggling. Like I said, he believed that if he was home, he could have saved his family just like he did in the past. He was so like racked with grief. They had to sedate him. And pretty much his uncle Marion was like holding him up. As soon as Arthur saw the caskets walked into the cemetery, he just dropped to his knees and just started wailing. Um, Marion just held him and the rest of the family kind of just rushed to their side to try and comfort them. Uh, two of the town preachers who were loosely linked to a church that Charles had gone to in the past. Let me just start that sentence again. Mm. Two of the town preachers who were loosely linked to a church that Charles had gone to in the past were going to officiate the ceremony. It was a fast ceremony. They were done in about 30 minutes. I mean, Arthur could barely walk past and then they sat down at the head of the caskets and waited for the rest of the family. Interestingly enough, Marion chose to allow Charles to be buried alongside his family, something that did not happen with uh, <laughs> episode 43's Simmons. Mm, mm, yeah. Now, after the family finished the, you know, the, the wake portion of the event, everyone else who was there was allowed to do a pass through and leave the cemetery. It took three hours. Oh my God. Before that was done. Then the bodies were placed there. Um, eventually they would add a very large tombstone as well as like a cement like space on top of it. Um, and I believe that was definitely to stop grave robbers at the time. And that had the same epithet that I read to you earlier. It lists the names of the victims. Mm-hmm. You, you're like, okay, people got their fixation, you know, people wanted to see, did the faces look awful? From everything that I was able to read, apparently the morticians did an excellent job and no one looked, you know, brutalized. Yeah, no one looked like they actually got shot. And, yeah, well, yeah. he did, he, like, hit a lot of them in the head to make sure they were dead. But yeah. It wasn't, it mustn't have been in the face because the morticians were able to make it, like, a beautiful looking ceremony. God, God bless morticians. They but do they do work. <laughs> things don't calm down. Two things are happening simultaneously. People become fixated on the suicide notes. And people are still showing up in Germantown. Stopping at the cemetery. Stopping by the house, which is still locked and roped off. People are like stealing rocks from in front of the house. Bits of wood from the house. 
Oh my God, come on, guys. Well, so Monday, December 29th, Marion goes into the city to talk to some of his friends, and he's just like, the crowds, they just won't stop. And so he mentions that someone even stole that first rifle that Charles had left in the the one that jammed. Mm-hmm. They Because he had left it, I don't know how, but like he had left that in the tobacco house. And so somebody broke in there and stole that rifle. And honestly, he was starting to get worried that people were going to break in to the house in general. Uh, his friend, Jim Hill, just said kind of matter of fact, listen, if all these people are going to keep coming anyway, you should just fence the place off, set it up and charge them to get in to see it. He had this idea because in 1925, there was a man who got stuck in a cave in Kentucky and they just decided since they couldn't get him out, just like Nutty Putty Cave, they were just going to leave it. But at the time, I guess they didn't think to seal it like they did with Nutty Putty Cave. Mm-hmm. And so even though like they tried to keep people away from the cave system, folks just showed up. And so they charged admission for to go to the cave. While they were talking, Charles also realized that, sorry, Marion realized that Charles still owed $2,200 for the farm. And there was no way that Arthur was in any shape to work that farm or pay it off. And the bill was going to be due soon. And that last fact is really what settled it for Marion. He's like, if people are going to treat my family like sideshow circus, we might as well make the money off of being the sideshow. Right, yeah. I mean, I guess. So Marion Sanders and another one of their friends named Homer uh, went the next day. They put up a big fence. And then the Danbury Report published uh, this article on January 15th that I'm going to read to you. It says, um, here we go. Due to people coming in such large numbers to view for themselves the place where the tragic death of the Lawson family occurred near here, relatives of the family have erected a fence around the place and are charging admission for people to satisfy their morbid curiosity. Cars from almost everywhere are reported seen there every day, and one day recently, a Walnut citizen, a Walnut Cove citizen in passing there counted 91 cars parked in front of the place. The state of the brain of Charlie Lawson now being examined at John Hopkins Hospital, when completed, will be given out to the North Carolina doctors of John Hopkins, who will report their findings to the public. Three weeks after the murders, it opened for business. 91 cars lined up, huh? Mm-hmm. Mind you, in a time period where most people don't own cars. And, yeah. <laughs> so this is people... Carpooling, probably, you know, a whole little community of people piling into the car, hanging out in the bed of the truck, driving hours in the cold. And and how much was he charging for those people to get in? <laughs> um, it it did say. Uh, I could not find. I found some of the excerpts from the little pamphlet that he wrote, and he would sell that. Mm-hmm. Um, and people could read about what happened. And the thing is, it was from their perspective. Uh, and so they were able to, I feel like, control the narrative a little bit and not have things get too crazy because, like, hey, this happened to our family. Here's something that tells you about the people who died here. Uh, but it doesn't say the price on it. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. But they made enough money. I'll, let, I'll tell you why in a little bit. Okay. So initially the crowds came every day, uh, well into springtime. And then it slowed down, and Marion opened it only on Sundays. 
He left the house the same as it was. He, they even left the cake that Marie had been making on the counter. And this is like so gross, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. I didn't initially <laughs> put it in my notes, but I remember it. So the cake that Marie was making, she had iced it and put uh, raisins on it. And so over time, uh, one of the family members noticed that the raisins were being taken off of the cake. We're not sure if they were being eaten, but the rumor is that they were being sold for like between five and twenty-five dollars. So, <laughs> so one of yeah, one of the wives of the family, like the the sisters-in-law, ended up buying like a glass cake container and putting it in there. So because like even at once the raisins were all gone. People would like touch it, squeeze it, pull a piece of it off. Are you kidding me? Mind you, this cake that's been sitting there for months is probably disgusting. Yeah, it's probably. Uh, oh my god. Uh. Um, they mounted the guns that he used on the mantle, and they put a replacement rifle for the one that had been stolen. He created a rope path in the house that kind of led people like, "Here's the living room. Here's the kitchen." Uh, if you look up pictures of the online pictures that like people took, you can still see the blood stains over the house. Uh, funny enough, ghost stories kind of grew. And uh, there was one night that I guess these kids showed up and they tried to like break in and they like opened a window. And when the kid stuck his hand in something like cut him and uh, of course, that was, there's a ghost in there, it stabs you. There was a, a, a ghost story that if you looked in the mirrors at night, the stove glowed red. If you looked in the windows at night. More than likely what happened was then that kid tried to break in. One of the family members was there and just oh slashed him and was like, stay gone. Um, so Marion hmm. sold off all of the farm equipment on Charles's property and... Shortly after that, he closed his brother's estate. Uh, they were able to pay it off in cash to the bank with the money from the tourists and the money with the farm equipment. Mm -hmm. Arthur didn't want to live there, and he didn't want to farm it. I don't blame him. He lived with different family members from time to time. He stayed with his uh, girlfriend. Her name was Irene. The two actually intended to get married, but Irene's father was very superstitious and was just like, Arthur might have inherited his father's murder genes. You cannot marry him. Oh my god. <laughs> yep. Uh, somehow over the next decade, Arthur lost ownership of the farm. He started drinking heavily, and he ended up working for his Uncle Marion in 1940. Hmm. <coughs> uh, on May 5th, 1945, Arthur was driving one of his uncle's construction trucks on the Winston-Salem Walnut Cove Highway when he hit a construction barricade. Arthur was thrown from the vehicle as well as his passenger. The passenger survived, and Arthur probably would have too, except the truck rolled down the same hill where Arthur fell and landed. Uh, uh. Uh, a teacher who was nearby... Uh, saw it happen and she couldn't help Arthur but she did help the other man she honestly saved that other guy's life several local men showed up and they lifted the truck off of Arthur and said that there was like one last breath 
Like he he like breathed in one last time, and he died mm-hmm. at the age of thirty one. Oh, God. Okay. Arthur, Arthur was buried with his family, and his friends and family mourned this loss just as they did in nineteen twenty nine. His grave is only a few feet away from the rest of his family. When he hmm. died, well, when he died, he was married, and his wife, uh, her name was Nina Bybee, and she made a decision that she felt was the best for their children and her own mental health. She sold off everything that she and Arthur had, uh, packed everything they could in the car, and she drove to California, where she raised her four children, Nancy, Patsy, Maybelle, and James Arthur Lawson Jr. She never remarried, and her children grew up far, far away from the memory of Charles Lawson and the massacre on Christmas Eve. Hmm. Wait, is that? That's not it, is it? That's it. Oh my God. All right. Hold on one second. (laughs) You have questions. What do you want to know? Okay. So, uh, there are two things. Two things. Uh, No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, because you asked. um, But the the first question. um, So, about this picture that they took, like, before. Oh, have you? Oh, you looked it up? The pictures of all of them together that did this sad looking photo? Yeah, I remember seeing that picture and like, you, like he's like it, Charles is, you know, he's like, oh yeah, we're taking a picture, blah blah blah, and then his family is just like, we're so fucking miserable right now. Well, the other factor you got to remember is that exposure time with old cameras was a lot longer, mm-hmm. and so you had to pick a, a face and hold it for a while. Exactly. So he was just there. So holding the the smile is real tough. So most people just kind of let their natural face sit. And if you happen to have a, a RBI, you know, a resting bitch face, so RBF, um, you're just, I guess, screwed. You just look kind of bad. Uh, maybe, but I, I don't know. Maybe it was just because they just didn't want to be there to <laughs> take the picture. Well, they were pretty excited. I mean, they just got new stuff. They never got store-bought clothes everything was made by by fanny and marie mm-hmm. so um another thing um I, when like, i when i first heard yeah, look, i gotta go tell you i went to, well i went to school for photography so i'm gonna tell oh. you the kind of cameras they were using in the late 1800s mm-hmm. um so like the original ones like the daguerreotypes you're talking about an exposure of like 20 minutes uh now they did manage to reduce it to a lot longer but i want you to think about this Hold a smile for a minute, or even half that time, 30 seconds. It's not what's easy. A, what's a smile? God. Ugh. Oh, shut up. <laughs> but yeah, even though like by like the late 1800s, they had like, it had dropped down to about like 25 seconds for an exposure. It is still very hard to smile and have it look genuine mm-hmm. for that long. So yeah, yeah, I mean, I, okay. I, but okay, continue. Okay. What's your next point? Okay, so when I first heard the story, and then I forget where I heard it from, but they were trying to like make it sound like maybe Arthur had come back 
from you know buying his ammunition from in town and he saw what his dad did and then he's the one who killed charles and not charles killing himself in the woods yeah uh that's not the way it was uh written <laughs> and the things that i read uh, i know i know they said, like, he was I... With the, they, they said he was with the police mm. I remember it took them hours to find him. So who knows? That's a right. pretty big thing. Because here's my thing. I feel like if I come back and I find out my dad did all this, I go find him in the woods and I kill him. I don't know if I would have been uh, as like shook up. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And I'm not sure if I'm thinking of another story that's just like this. <laughs> I think I, I I might be, but I don't there know. There are a lot of family annihilators, so. Yeah, but no, like this one. Just like this one. But yeah, okay. Hmm. Well, well, here's the thing. I didn't realize exactly how similar this case ended up to the Eugene Simmons cases. I don't like pre-research them when I decide I'm going to write them. Mm. I, I hear a little bit of the story and then I decide to, you know, dig deeper. So I only knew a little bit because I covered both of them last year. I didn't know anything about the fact that he had assaulted his daughter. This, right. like, it, like, almost the same thing as what Russell uh, Eugene Simmons did. So that was really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, I think Nina Fiby did the, the smartest thing. She left North Carolina alone. She was like, yeah. you know what, <laughs> North Carolina, this, this is just too much. It's too much. I, just, I we need a break. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Well, great story as always. Time to find oh, now. What you mm-hmm. got for me on the spooky trip? <sighs> Okay. <laughs> well, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. That doesn't sound like, I don't know, kind of like stalkerish. And then when you think about it, like Santa Claus is like in the song, they're talking about children. And then you're like, Santa Claus is watching my kids sleep. And then you're just like, that's kind of problematic, Santa. Like, Listen, how else <laughs> is he going to know if you're a bad kid? He can't, okay, well, you can't watch me during my waking hours. Why do you got to watch me in my sleep, though? What am I doing in my sleep that's, like, bad? What if you should be <laughs> sleeping and you're not? Then you watch me when I'm awake. Don't watch me when I'm asleep. I don't know. Do you ever look in on your kids while they're sleeping? Sometimes, yeah. No, See, actually, no, I can't. <laughs> well, except for on the weekends, but, you know. I can. <laughs> right. Like when they were littler, you know what I mean? Like you ever. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. See, the, the, the song is trying to paint Santa as like um, everybody's friggin' dad. But I, I get you. It is like, I mean, listen, people write weird song lyrics all the time. So I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Miss um, Miss Brittany and I kind of have a little bit of a hatred for Santa this year. Why? <laughs> Saturday. Saturday night. What do you mean? What what do we do Saturday night? 
What do you mean? Play D&D? Yeah, what happened with a Santa? <laughs> oh, I'm good. I well, huh. That was a terrible time. That was horrible times. That was a horrible time. We had to fight a Santa and everybody almost died. Yeah, and one was... person did die. It was a terrible time. Terrible, horrible times. <clears throat> I forgot about that. I thought you were saying like <laughs> up, I thought you were saying Christmas Saturday. I was like, what's going on next time, next weekend? Oh, Christmas is Saturday. Oh my god. Yeah, I thought you were talking about next, like the the fact that Christmas is on a, sa- a Saturday. No, 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 no. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> but of course, we are not talking about uh, this is big, the big man, the big red man today. We are talking about. The creature of some children's nightmares. You know him. You probably love him. At this point in your life, you probably love him. Um, Krampus. Krampus. Yay, Krampus! I told you I was going to talk about him 40 years out. (laughs) And it wouldn't be Christmas if, you know, I didn't mention him. Like it wouldn't be like, yeah, you know what I mean? You can't you can't not mention Krampus during Christmas time. That's just sort of sacrilegious. <laughs> oh but yeah, we were talking about Krampus today. Do you know do you know anything about uh this 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 guy? Alright, so I know it's European. I know they have this super cool festival where they like people dress up like Krampus and they scare kids. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know that he eats them. And does he give them anything good? Mm. Uh, it's been on. Well, sort of, no. No. No, he does not. <laughs> he never he doesn't give them anything good? Okay. I don't think so. I think that's he leaves out all the persana to do. So, but I know he eats them. I can't remember why. All right. Well, let's get into Mr. Krampus, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> okay. So, like you mentioned before, Krampus is a uh, European legend. Uh, if you think of Krampus, well, everybody knows what Krampus looks like. He's a like a half goat, half demon type thing, and he punishes Christmas. Uh, he punishes children during Christmas time. So yeah, he 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 rides along with Saint Nicholas on his nightly adventure on you know delivering gifts to children. Now, uh, people believe that Krampus actually originated in Germany, and his name. I thought that too. Yeah, his name. Uh, it it comes from the the German word uh, Krampen. And it means it, it comes. It means claw. So, yeah, I know, right? And he's thought of to be like part of like pagan rituals during the, like the winter solstice. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I can see it. I can see it. So, in one legend, like Krampus is the son of hell, not hell, like. Christian hell, like H E L L. It's uh Norse hell, H E L. Okay. And hell hell's the the Norse god of the underworld. So he's like um he's like Hades. But he's not Hades. He's you know you know what I mean. Anyway. Mm-hmm. 
so, but with, you know, Christianity on the rise and stuff, they made Krampus um, with Christmas for some freaking reason. Um, so, yeah. And St. Nicholas and Krampus, they didn't arrive on Christmas, you know, December 25th, whenever Christmas was. They, they would arrive on December 5th, in the beginning of December. <clears throat> And they, this was called, um, I'm going to try to pronounce it, it's German. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, it's called Krampus Knot, and which means Krampus Knight. Okay. Uh, and this is where, you know, St. Saint, Saint Nicholas, he gives, but Krampus comes in and he's like... Huh, I see you've been naughty this year. I got some branches and sticks for your butt. So <laughs> he, Krampus beats ch- uh, naughty children wow. with branches. Yeah, he, he beats them with their, you know, he, with their branches and sticks. And. Okay. And, you know, sometimes he, he, um, he does eat them or he takes them to hell, like actual hell. <laughs> Fun? <laughs> fun, yeah, sure. So if you're, like, naughty and, and, you know, your sibling is not there in the morning after December 5th, they're probably in hell. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is absolutely insane. So, you know, December 5th is Krampus Notch, and December 6th is St. Nicholas Day. So this is when, you know actual i guess christmas or whatever they would call it um this is when kids would wake up and the good kids would wake up and they'd open their presents that they got from you know saint nicholas Mm -hmm. but if they were naughty this is just the day that they were just like in bed nursing their injuries that they got from krampus because he whooped their butts last night i just have so many questions about where this started (laughs) Like it's German. I'm just saying, who beat the hell out of their kid and went? <laughs> Krampus did it, and everybody went, "Who's Krampus?" And they were like, "The evil version of Santa who beats your children if they're bad." And everybody went, oh, "Okay." Uh, yeah. <laughs> like it doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> He's just, I don't know, it's just something, like, either, like, he takes y'all away, or he beats y'all, because you're, it's like, you know, there's no coal, no coal at all, you get your butt whooped, <laughs> because you were bad, you get your butt whooped by this evil goat-looking demon guy. <clears throat> but yeah, that's, that's usually what happens <clears throat> to these kids. So... Uh, you know, there's some some different variations of, you know, what Krampus looks like. Sometimes, you know, it, it's always the same. It's, he He's a goat-looking guy. He has horns. He's a demon. He has a long tongue. <laughs> All right. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, sometimes he carries chains around. Um, sometimes he, he has, you know, he has his little... What would you call it? It's like a little backpack type of thing that he 
uses to like shove kids in. The the big red bag? No, no, not that. It's it's like a wicker bag that he wears on his back to like carry all his stuff in plus the kids. That sounds that he takes away. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's um it's uh ooh, it's something. <laughs> So there, there are other um, traditions um, or festivities, festivals, whatever you want to call it, like surrounding Krampus, mm-hmm. and like this time of year. And one that you mentioned earlier, it's called Krampus Lof. It looks cool, and, and it's it's called it's 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 Krampus Lof, and it means Krampus Run. So it looks like that they just take off, and people are running yeah. through the street, and then these huge, very cool Krampus cosplays. Yes, yes, like you gotta like uh, look them up. It's awesome. But during this time, it's it's like this whole community thing. And excuse me, God, that was in my throat, and I still heard it. Um, if people, you know, there, there's alcohol involved. People. Dress as Krampus, and they run through the streets. And they go scaring not only children; they scare a lot of people with their Krampus costumes. <clears throat> Still cool, and yeah, and this started in the late twentieth century. So, and it's very, very popular in Austria, in Germany. So, of course, you know where Krampus is said to have originated from. So. People sell. I don't. I don't get it because people celebrate him, but also it's just like gritty. You know what I mean? People celebrate gritty, but they also fear gritty. Uh huh. Just like the one in Philadelphia. <laughs> that's what I say. Gritty. Yeah, that's his name, right? The mascot. The yeah. Flyers mascot. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 So Krampus is just like gritty. It's like yeah. you fear him, but you celebrate him at the same time. Gritty, because... gritty is weird looking, and people <clears throat> initially hated him, and then embraced him as ridiculous. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. But I like gritty is not tied to like child abuse. This is true. No, gritty's just tied to was it Antifa. Oh, uh, I, I get. I don't know. I because Donald Trump said that you know bad things happen in Philadelphia, and then Philadelphians were like, "Yeah, absolutely, bad things do happen here. Get the fuck out." Like, like, yes. Uh, you know what's the statement? To to fuck around is divine. To find no to fuck around is to human. To find out is divine. Did you say this earlier? I did something? say that to you the other day. Like it is though. It's it's solid. Oh my god. It's solid, so yes. Okay, I'm gonna send you a picture you uh real quick. This is this is a picture of Krampus. This is one I found and I absolutely adore it. So I hope <laughs> because it's so fucking absurd. Uh where's that? There it goes. Okay, check this out. Yeah. Wait, no. Hold on. I didn't send it. God damn. Hold on. There it goes. Okay, okay. There it goes. Check it out. Who is he? This is not a broom. 
<laughs> that is a bundle of sticks and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine children. Also, why are there babies? Babies can't be bad. I don't know. But yeah, what I'm, what I, the picture I showed Brittany, it's of Krampus. He's flying through the sky on a very big bundle of branches and sticks. And he has children flying on the back of, like, on, on the branches as well. But it's like a very, he's, he, like, it's weird because it's like one of those old-timey brooms, like hand brooms, you know what I mean? So it's like tied at the, at the top and there are kids that are like on the, on the end just holding on for dear life as he's flying them away in the night sky. It's, it's a horrible picture, but it's, it's damn if it's not funny to look at. Oh God. Okay. It's very peculiar. It really is. Um... There's another Krampus thing, mm-hmm. and it's called a uh, Krampus cart carton. So like, yeah, Krampus carton, mm-hmm. uh, and this is in Europe. So this is, I guess, when you're when they exchange greeting cards that feature Krampus on them. Okay. And yeah, this is basically like they they give out greeting cards that have Krampus on them sometimes they have like poems in them sometimes it's just like funny rhymes and crap like that um but yeah it's just like it's it's weird it hold on (laughs) roses are red violets are blue I'm gonna sneak into your house and be your children You know, like that. Yeah, just like that. That's exactly what they sounded like. Oh my god. Only you know, and like in German. And I don't ask me to say any words in German. It probably rhymed. The way you said it, it probably rhymed. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness. It, it's uh, like there are some pictures, I guess, of Krampus. It says Krampus has some sexual overt- overtones. Oh, I don't even want to think it, about that. And that he would, like, be chasing around, like, very bodacious women. Buxomous women. You're just saying terrible things now. And I'm, I'm, That's how it's pronounced. I'm, that's how it's said. I, no, I'm just saying you're saying it's... Oh, I get, I get what you're saying. <laughs> you are describing me. <laughs> Is what I'm saying. <laughs> just uh, yeah, just imagine you're at um, was it Cramp- <laughs> Cramp- Krampus Loft, and uh, you did, there there are Krampus cosplayers just chasing you around. <laughs> I don't like uh, horrible times. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. <sighs> okay, so like everybody. Everybody basically like celebrates Krampus in their own, their own little ways, or they they I guess they have their own little Krampus variations in their own countries and stuff like that. <clears throat> so there is I don't know how to pronounce this one, but like in North America, we have I don't know 
like what do it's we like, have? It's, it's like toned down. And I guess like what we what I guess what happened is that it, it got toned down, and then he just like Santa Claus. There's no more Krampus, and Santa just leaves like coal and stuff. Okay. Um, let's see. In Croatia, Krampus is described as a devil wearing a cloth sack around his waist, and he has chains like basically hanging from him, like his neck and his wrists and stuff. <clears throat> And it says when a child like gets a gift from Saint Nicholas, uh-huh. he's he's also given like a golden branch to represent like all his good deeds he did through that year. No, what that is is Krampus going. I could have beat you, but <laughs> no, I no, didn't. that's what he. No, that's the gift they get from Saint Nicholas. Because Krampus but, is there too, so Krampus yeah. is like, listen. I could have beat you with this, but I didn't. Good luck with next year. Oh my god! Okay, so That's and then if, if the child is bad, then Krampus takes all their gifts that they got from Saint that that they would have gotten from Saint Nicholas, and he takes them for himself, and he just gives them like a silver branch. And I think you should just like you wake up and they're just like squashed. Just trashed oh on the front porch. Just he like he just, the... yep, he just like stomped all over your presence. Oh my god! And then, in whatever way you say "fuck you" in German, it's written on top of everything. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I I actually appreciate that a lot more, and I'd laugh my ass off like, "Damn, I fucked up this year." Right. He didn't take them. He didn't give them anybody else. He just like crunched them and was like, "Boo!" Oh goodness. So there's apparently a Krampus not walk. That's in DC. That happens. Oh, fun! Yeah, I just saw a picture of it, and like people just dressed up like Krampus. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I didn't know what happened over. Here. That actually like happened over here. Yeah, no, I had no That's- idea. That's actually pretty awesome. Like, I wish. I wish. No, I don't. No, never mind. I don't want it. No, you know what? I feel like That's we already okay. tell. Like, I'm. I'm already loosely not into the Santa mythos for children. So, and it's mainly because like kids who don't have a lot think that Santa doesn't like them because they don't receive like iPhones and iPads and stuff because their parents don't have that money. So I said, if I right, had any yeah. children. Listen, the iPad came from me. Mommy gave that to you. Santa brought you the socks. And that's just how I feel about that. So, like, the idea of adding in another layer of, like, lies we tell to children. Just, I don't yeah. know. It doesn't sit well with me. Yeah, I mean, I understand that. Yeah. I didn't. I don't think we told the kids about Santa Claus. Maybe maybe we did it as, like, a scare tactic. The Oh, it was school that told them. Never mind. Yeah, probably talking to other children. Yeah, and they, that's they, they get it from word of mouth and stuff like that. I mean, I understand you that. No, which is normal. I just personally, I just feel like, ugh. like I would never, ever, ever tell my kids about Krampus. Ever. That's what I'm just saying. I feel like this is too much. It's too much to. 
add to the, the, the pile of mythos. We got the Tooth Fairy, we got Santa Claus. There's a lot going on here. Yeah, not something I want to... Like, my kids already believe Slenderman and freaking Siren Head are saying... Well, I mean, really... your kids also like Bendy and the Ink Machine and all sorts of creepy things, so... Now, now the new thing is, um, I guess Huggy Wuggy from this this game. Oh, it's a great Poppy game, Play- yeah, Poppy's Play- Poppy Playhouse. Yes. <laughs> oh goodness. Well, okay, okay. So Krampus, and I guess modern days now he's you know he's seen as like he's still seen as bad, but people embrace it more. And like you see, you see Krampus like in like spooky holiday specials, like um, Supernatural and stuff like that. And he just comes in, and he, like he's just this creepy ass thing. Like people, you just see him like, and especially like movies. He has like there's like a few movies of Krampus in it like, that are called Krampus. Yeah, there was one that came out a couple years ago. I never watched. Neither did I. And I'm like, I already know about Krampus. I don't want to like, I don't want y'all to like ruin it for me. So, blah. But yeah. Oh, also, Los Angeles has a Krampus <laughs> freaking parade too. I mean, it would be fun to like go to. I just wouldn't take the children. No, not at all. They, I, I don't need to like ruin their their Christmas. They think Christmas is all about presents right now, anyway. So, just like. Eh. No, that's okay. I don't. I don't want to ruin the Christmas. <laughs> oh, but goodness gracious! That was yeah. That's that's Krampus. That's Krampus for you guys. Um, he's a goat guy who will beat your kids or kidnap them. <laughs> <laughs> I know I said that like like twenty minutes ago, but it's still fun to hear. <laughs> He'll beat him or kidnap him or he'll eat him. It's, it usually it depends on how he's feeling. Like, how bad you were that year. How bad were you really? Oh, goodness. But, yeah, that's uh, that's what I got. Sounds good. And I want to say mm. Merry Christmas to all of our listeners. If you've listened this long, for sure. Um, yes. Merch drop coming on January 6th, along with season number two. We're going to start it off with a bang. Absolutely. That will be when we are starting our visual podcast. So you'll be able to, if you are on Spotify, simply choose whether you want to listen to the audio or visual version. uh, Or you can go to YouTube, where it will also be posted. Yes. All other platforms, it will still be just like normal. Yeah, either one, Spotify or YouTube, I'd suggest YouTube, just because YouTube's, you know... (laughs) Either way, we want we want y'all <clears throat> to to look at us and watch our reactions. Yeah, <laughs> I think that'll be other. the thing that's gonna get people. They're just gonna be like, "Wow." <laughs> yes, just my stares, and I'm like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" Oh <laughs> yeah, because you're a quiet person, but you you, you give good face. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, like I said, happy holidays. I know Hanukkah already passed. Uh, 
But for all other seasons that everyone's celebrating during winter solstice, we'd like to say we hope you have a great time with your family, with your friends. Uh, thank you so much for listening this year. Honestly, this was this became bigger than anything I could have ever hoped. 70 countries listen to us. Uh, we're it's, very near 200,000 listens across the platform. It's crazy. We did not think it was going to pop off <laughs> like this this year. You know. But we are very thankful it did. So even if you only listened one time, thank you so much. And see you next year. Yep, see you next year, guys. <laughs>